Our storyteller this morning, I've known for over 50 years, and I've got a lot of stories I could tell. <laughs> but I'm going to be nice, I'm fairly nice. Don Strum is what I call a man's man. Dirt bikes, snowmobiles, car repairs, house repairs, building. But his greatest claim to fame, in my mind, is his insatiable desire to fish for fish. Jesus calls us to be fishers of men. And Don is a fellow who loves to fish and who uses his friendships with many, many, many people to share Christ. Don, give us a word. remember the first time that Pastor Bud came here to preach up in our old, old sanctuary to uh, see if we wanted him, to see if he wanted us. And afterwards, Dr. John Dawson said to me, we'll never get him. But we got him for over 27 years, and we praise the Lord for it. At the age of 89, you do have a lot of stories. I chose just two. When I was 50 years ago, probably, or 40, I taught fourth grade boys for four years um, in Sunday school. How in the world are you going to keep fourth grade boys to listen to you? So I did a politically incorrect thing, which you probably couldn't do today. I asked for a volunteer, and I picked him up, and I sang Rockabye Baby to him and put him down and thanked him, and I said, from now on, when you guys don't pay attention and you're noisy, I'm gonna give you a rockabye. <laughs> you would not believe how effective that was. <laughs> so fast forward to 40 years. We were at the Bellevue Presbyterian Church and our dear friend, Dr. John Dawson, memorial service, and after the service, Mary and I went up into the room where they had coffee and cookies and so on. And we were standing against the wall, and two men came up, all dressed up in suits and so on. I didn't recognize them. They kind of got very close to Mary and me, and they started to sing in Rockabye Baby. <laughs> well, it's obviously that I taught them 40 years ago how to sing Rockabye Baby. But did I teach him anything about Christ? I did not ask him that question. The second story um, is more spiritual. It's also happened about 50 years ago when um, Mary and I were um, in our front room and I was trying to build a fire in the fireplace. And all of a sudden, I had terrible chest pains. I asked Mary to wrap me, my chest as tight as she could, and I don't know why, but it did help. Well, that ended up with me being in the hospital for nine days, out of work for two and a half months, 
and emotionally scarred for a whole year. Well, our, our doctor at that time was Dr. Ben Ueno. Some of you know him, a dear gentleman. And after some tests, and I don't know what other he did, I was pretty much out of it at the time, he decided that I had a viral infection of the heart lining, which is called pericarditis. I'm very fortunate that it did not hit the heart valves or it probably would not be standing here. Well, I don't remember what medicine they gave me, except I remember they gave me a lot of aspirin. And when the fever broke, the seventh, first, day, first night, they changed my sheet seven times because I perspired so much. I was in like a pool of water. The next night, it was five, five nights, five times. And one of the nurses' aides said, if you keep this up, we're going to send you down to the laundry. <laughs> but, you know, about that time, Pastor Bud was also on the street with night watch, where either a pastor or a priest or a rabbi would walk the streets of the bad parts of, of town, taverns, and places that you and I don't want to go to see if anybody needed help. And it was his night when I was in the hospital. And so about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, he felt the urge to come up and pray for me. I was in Providence Hospital at that time, which is a beautiful Catholic hospital. Now it's part of the Swedish group, I believe. Um, he prayed for me that night. Of course, I don't remember it, but Bud, thank you for your prayers. Well, you know, most of us don't really hear directly from the Lord periodically. But on about the seventh or eighth night, I don't, I don't, I was pretty much unconscious at that time. So, but uh, at late night in my own room, dark, I started weeping. But I wasn't weeping because of pain. I was weeping because of joy. It was like the Lord was saying to me, I have things under control and I want to show you some blessings. In my mind, I had a movie going on and he was showing me a lot of blessings that I had through the life. First of all, there was my dear wife, Mary, and then my family. And then there was friends, and there was friends in the church. There was my work and friends in my work. And then there was all the vacations and the trips we had taken, one blessing after another. Well, it probably went, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds, but it seemed like a long time. Well, was that my mind playing tricks on me? Or was the Lord trying to bless, give me a blessing in the hospital? I choose to believe it was a blessing from the Lord. Well, those are my stories. Thank you for listening. We have two scriptures for this morning, and you can either 
follow along in your Bible or it'll be on the screen. The first scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And the second one is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 from the message. I'll now read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 to 4. Now about the collection of God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come to, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the man you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable me to go also, they will accompany me. The second is from Ephesians verses, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 from the message. Watch what God does and then you do it. Like children, you learn proper behavior from your parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. The word of the Lord. Most of us have heard someone say, well, the Lord told me. I've been a pastor for... Uh, 61 years. <laughs> and the memory I have lost has been found. <laughs> I have to say there have been times when I have had the impression that God wanted me to do something specific, but I can't say with integrity that God told me. I just operate on the basis of, well, I'll act in faith. The night Don refers to when he was in the hospital, really, really out of it, with the peril of death in the background, I remember I was in an alley off of First Avenue dealing with people that were trying to find shelter in some of the dumpsters. And I began to think about Don. Now, I knew he was in the hospital. I had no idea what was wrong with him. But like Don suggested, when it was 2 or 3 in the morning, I, I just had this heavy impression on my heart, go see Don and pray for him. I said, Lord, now the hospital's closed. How am I going to get in? Well, on the street, I wore a clerical collar. And when I walked up to the hospital, the night watchman saw me coming, assuming I was a Catholic priest at Providence Hospital, which was Catholic Hospital. He unlocked the door and let me in. He said, can I help you, Father? I said, I, I need to see Don Strom. Okay, come with me. And he looked it up in the directory and led me right to Don's room. 
The lights were out. It was very dark. I could tell Don was in bed, that he was sleeping hard or unconscious. And I stood there and I prayed. I don't know how long. But I prayed until there was a sense that that's enough. I've got it. I turned to leave and saw standing in the doorway a nun dressed in the full old-fashioned regalia, you know, the big. We had a nun that walked on night watch with us, and I was walking with the nun one night because we didn't want the women, the nuns, to walk alone. It was too dangerous. We had six of our street priests wound up in the hospital uh, in trauma units from being attacked, and that's another story. And when I walked in to a bar called the Britannica with this nun, and I was in my clerical color, somebody at the back of the bar shouted out, here comes the yod couple. <laughs> well, this nun was standing in the doorway, and she said, can I help you, Father? And I said, I've just been praying for Don Strong. Can you tell me how he's doing? She said, just a second, and she went and got his chart and handed it to me. And I looked at it, and it had been written by a doctor. And if you're a doctor, forgive me, but doctors are notorious for their handwriting. And I stood there, and I looked at that chart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finally, I decided the charade had gone on long enough, and I thanked her, and I handed her Don's chart. And I went back to the street at real peace because I knew Don was in God's hands. And I'm so glad you were, Dad. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Ollie James tells the story of a man who was soliciting for funds for the Salvation Army. And he came to a very successful executive's home. He knew this was an executive who was very successful. And when he solicited him for a gift to charity, the successful executive said, well, I, 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 just, I, I just don't feel right about that. I've got so many obligations. I don't know if you know it, but my parents are in danger of losing their home in foreclosure. And on top of that, my mother needs an operation, and my brother was in an accident and needs extensive skin grafts for burns. And my brother-in-law is going to jail unless he can make up the missing funds from where he works. And my sister says if he goes to jail, she's going to shoot the kids and herself. The solicitor backed up and he said, I had, I had no idea that you had all of these responsibilities and obligations. And the executive said, well, I'm glad you understand because if I'm not giving any of these people a dime, it's not cinch, I'm not going to give you any money. <laughs> Clearly the man had a heart problem, not a money problem. The story of our salvation begins with giving. 
most of us have heard and memorized when we were young. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Or Romans 8.32, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And Ephesians 5.2, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself to us. Now on and on goes the litany of God's generosity to us. And He has said that He wants us to be like Him. During the last week of Jesus' earthly life, Mark's gospel tells us in the 11th chapter that Jesus entered Jerusalem and He went to the temple. And then there's that little phrase, and He looked at everything. Then the next chapter, chapter 12, it says that He came back and after He had been teaching in the courts of the Gentiles and in the temple courts, He went to the court of the women where 13 offering containers sat. Many of them were designated for specific offering needs. And it says, and he sat down and he watched them bring their tithes and offerings. And you know the story. He watched the rich dumping in great amounts of money, but he also saw a poor widow who had two pennies that she came, maybe embarrassed, and dropped the pennies in the offering. And Jesus said, She's given more than all the rest because she has given out of her poverty and she has given all that she has. I'm fascinated and click through the channels quite often to television preachers. And I stop doing that when I have become upset enough. And they are always talking prosperity. Give so you can get. Your giving unlocks God's grace. That is baloney. That's not biblical. Our giving does not unlock God's grace. And then I have friends of mine that say, Bud, you know, I stopped going to church because a preacher talked about money all the time. Well, that doesn't happen here, but maybe it should a little bit more simply because if you read your New Testament carefully, you will discover that Jesus talked about money and finances and giving more than any other subject, including prayer. And you give me a preacher that has the courage to preach about money more than he does about prayer, and I will introduce you to a preacher that's probably in trouble. Because Jesus knew that the last thing people will give up is frequently money. They will give up their morality, they will give up their family, they will give up their friendships, they will even kill when money is involved in the picture. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. He did not say it's difficult to serve God and money. He said it's impossible. Even a secular source, Winston Churchill said, we make a living by, by what we get. 
We make a life by what we give. I believe that when Jesus observes our worship here at Evergreen, it is not the quality of the sermon, nor the tunefulness of our voices in song, nor if we raise our hands or sit on our hands. He does not care. I think He watches the offering, too, because our salvation is about giving. And the offering often tells the condition of our hearts. Now, there is so much nonsense today about giving that I want us to look at the principles of biblical giving. And these principles are all over the Scriptures, but I only want to look at the four verses from 1 Corinthians 16 that Don read. Chapter 15, Jesus teaches about the resurrection. Chapter 16 begins right after the resurrection, now concerning the collection for God's people. This is the first principle of biblical giving. Biblical giving is for God's people. It's not for seats. It's not for buildings. It's not for instruments. It's for people. Because God wants lost people found. He wants the naked to be clothed. He wants the hungry to be fed. He wants the sick to be ministered to. And that takes bucks. But that's what God's plan is. Biblical giving, don't misunderstand me now, is not for pews or instruments or buildings, which are important. They are only tools. And these tools enable us to carry on the real ministry to people, provides us a place to house what will happen to people. Jesus' program is people, not property. Biblical giving is always a means to reach people with the good news of the abundant life in Christ. Second principle, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Biblical giving is for everyone. All of us are to give. Every congregation, every age, not just rich people, not just poor people, not just some people. My first church after seminary, the denomination had a fundraising campaign to take care of a whole bunch of needs and new mission opportunities. And everybody in the membership of our churches were supposed to fill out a pledge card. And one of our elders came to me and said, Pastor Bud, you know Grandma Newman, don't you? I said, of course. You know, she's made a pledge card. I don't think she understood what the, what, what we were asking for. And she lives on Social Security alone. And this old widow lady, whose house was kept warm by insulation from newspapers stuck on the wall. You know, if a match ever caught that place, it would have been gone like that. So I said, well, you know, I have a practice that I plan to follow all of my ministry, and that is not to have any idea what anyone in the church gives. 
because I'm enough of a sinner that it might change the way I act toward them. I know what I give. My wife and I talk it over. We have done this. But what do you want me to do? He said, well, maybe you should go to Grandma Newman and make sure she understands what we are trying to do. So I went to Grandma Newman and I actually kind of remonstrated. I was 27 years old, full of myself. And I said to her, Grandma Newman, we can't let you pledge this amount of money. It's too much. We know what you try to live on. And she kind of raised herself up in her chair and she said, young preacher, I learned a long time ago, if I don't give it, I get trapped into loving it. That's a stewardship sermon. If I don't get it, give it, I get trapped into loving it. 1 Corinthians 8, we saw referred to in that video clip. The churches north of Corinth gave out of their extreme poverty, not just a little, but extravagantly. If we wait until we have enough, we'll never have enough. John Paul Getty, the oil millionaire of another age, was once asked after his stock had gone very high, how much money do you need? And he said, just a little more. The third principle, on the first day of every week, Biblical giving is part of our worship of God. Why the first day of the week? That's when they gathered to worship. Some seem to give because the leader says it's time to give, or the financial planner or the CPA tells them that it has tax advantages. Instead, we are to give to worship. I remember a clergy from Mercer Island when all the clergy came to see this new building. One of them turned to me and said, how much are the dues? I said, we, we don't have a due structure here. How do, you, how do you get the money to pay for this? We passed the plate, which is what we did then. And he said, madness. Sheer madness. I said, well, how do you get money? He said, well, we sell tickets. But uh, I love to stand in front of my people and say, we are sinking. <laughs> he said, man, they really loosen it up and start to give. I thought, well, that may meet your budget, but certainly doesn't bring praise to God. We come to worship. Worship means to ascribe worth to. Worship is when we tell God what we think of Him. As we sing, as we pray, as we study His Word, as we give, we are saying and showing, Lord, this is how I feel about you. This is a most important principle. Giving is not just how bills are paid. Giving is, first of all, theological. It's worship. There's so much giving talk nowadays, self-centered. Give so you get back. Seed giving. 
seed giving, prosperity gospel. But the biblical giving is God-centered, and it's all about Him. Biblical giving is not just because there are needs. It is to assist us in saying, God, I value you. The fourth principle, each one of you, biblical giving is for every one of us. It answers the question, who is to give? When I came home from my first job of selling seed, garden seeds for Victory Gardens in the, in the Second World War, and salve, blue bonnet salve, door to door, I was seven years old, and I came home with all of my money that I had made, huge amounts, maybe 35 cents. And I put it on the table, and Dad looked at it, and he said, that's pretty good. And then he divided it out. 5% here, 10% here. The rest of it he scraped off and put it in his pocket. The 5% was for me to buy a candy bar. The 10% was for Sunday school. And my dad continued that until when I was in college, I would come home from my summer job and I wouldn't even open the pay envelope. I'd just toss it on the table because I'd come down Sunday morning and there was a little pile of money and a little pile of money and the rest was gone. And I just thought, well, I'm helping support the family, but I'm also giving to the church. And I sometimes looked at that 10% rather enviously. I wondered why God didn't need a candy bar as bad as I did. <laughs> By the way, when I got to college, as my parents were leaving, my mother reached in her pocket and she said, oh, son, here, I forgot and she handed me a savings, a bank book savings account with deposits from when I was seven years old, enabling me to understand the value of living within your means and giving me the joy of being able to pay for my own education. Who is to give? Everyone, even the little kids. <laughs> and the first church, Donna, and I served in southern Alabama, an old black lady, and man, you, this is, this is a time of segregation, really harsh. An old black lady that lived in the area out there on the edge of the swamp had a little shack, and it burned down one night. And I went to see Aunt Hannah, and when I walked in, she was living in a little shed that had been on her property. It had three walls with gaps in between where the wind whistled through, and the fourth wall was a torn tarp, and there was no floor, just a dirt floor. And Aunt Hannah had saved her rocking chair and her Bible, and man, her Bible was one of those big ones, and it looked like it would crush her. And we talked for quite a while. I said, I've made arrangements to try and get some of the men who will allow us to cut down Jack Pine on their property will haul it to the lumber to the yeah, to the lumber yard and trade it in for kennel dried lumber, and then we'll build you a little shed. And she said, No, my son Leroy needs to take care of his mama. I won't let you do that. But here, before you leave, I want you to read some of God's word. I want you to pray with me and for me. 
And then I got something I want to give you. And she reached in this old leather purse about this deep. And she pulled out a bill that was so worn you couldn't even hardly tell what denomination it was. And she handed it to me. And I said, Aunt Hannah, what's this? She said, that's for the Sunday school building you're building for the children. And I said, you're living in three walls with a dirt floor with only a rocking chair and your Bible and a lamp. I won't take it. I won't take it. And she got really rather angry with me. And she informed me, preacher, you got a lot to learn about my Jesus. I scoop it out, and he scoops it back in, and he's got a bigger scoop. Now that's stewardship. That's giving in response to a recognition of God's grace. He scoops it out, I scoop it in. Most of us have the opportunity to discover that when we give, even in difficult spots financially, it increases our wisdom and our care of what we keep. If I give away 10% to the Lord or a larger percentage, I'm pretty careful about the 70 or 80% I'm retaining. I become a better steward. Fifth principle. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money and saving it up. To me, this principle is that biblical giving is thoughtful giving. It's thought through. It's pre-planned. The teaching is to set it aside, to save it in order to give it, not just reach in and give what's handy. Like the man, when it was time for the offering, reached in and pulled his wallet out, and he had nothing but large bills in the wallet. And he didn't want to give large bills. I don't know what. He asked his wife, I don't have any. And this little child said, Daddy, here's my dime for Sunday school. You put this in, I'll hide under the bench. There are people like that, probably, that took the dime. Set aside a sum of money, saving it up. Don't just give because it's time for the offering or give because we are moved emotionally, but because we have thought through in our worship. It's a statement to God of how we view Him, how we trust Him, how we love Him. God does not particularly want your ad-lib offerings. Consistent, spur-of-the-moment giving is often not biblical. A very important principle of giving because we so often lean toward giving as a result of our emotion. We're made to feel guilty, or we hear a wrenching emotional story, or the music moved us, or the sermon was really good, or we give to get in return. We give to unlock the blessings of God. <laughs> Heresy. When we give that way, you see, the problem is the reverse is often true. We don't like the music. Preacher wasn't very good. We're upset with the leadership of the church, the direction it's going, so we cut back on our giving. We actually withhold our worship of God because we're displeased 
with persons. That is not biblical giving. When I predetermine what I will give, I am protected from unworthy motives for giving. I won't give simply because I've been moved or some religious song and dance has taken place that I'm responding to. And I will not give because I've been hit with a load of guilt. I will give because I have determined in a theological way my love for God before I ever came to the church building. Sixth principle. Biblical giving is proportionate giving. You are to give in keeping with the income. How do we determine what to give? We look at how God has blessed us. The amount is determined by taking the time to reflect upon how God has prospered us. Lord, what have you given into my care? What blessings do I have? What have I received from your hand? My salvation, my job, my family, my health, my finances, and so forth. Then when I've thought through carefully, my giving is a theological statement, a reflection of how much I appreciate God. Lord, this is the value I place upon what you have done for me this week or this month or this year. It's a statement I make in my giving because I've looked over God's generosity, not because somebody up front says it's time to give or they're offering boxes at the back or somebody has manipulated my fears or my compassion or my guilt or my greed or they've offered to put my name on a brass plaque someplace. We are not to give to the pastor or the elders or the budget or even to the church or denomination. We are to give to the Lord. And when we do not take an intelligent inventory and give as he has prospered us, then even if we give a million bucks, we've given a lot, but we have not given biblically. God wants our spiritual worship, not our money. Biblical giving says, I have interacted with the blessings of God in my life, and this is the value I place upon those blessings. What is the statement that my giving is making? It's not honest to say, oh, Lord, you have blessed me so much, and then sit on my wallet. God's people look at grace giving. And if you look at grace giving, you'll never have to resort to gimmick giving. By the way, we never save by holding back what we ought to give in thankful worship. It just goes. The principle is in Haggai 1, 5, and 6. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that has holes in it. God desires our giving to be based on the abundance of our relationship to him. That's why the film clip showed the Second Corinthians chapter 8 Macedonians. Listen to the strange juxtaposition of words. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. How do those things go together? They do. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with others for the privilege of sharing. And they did not do this as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. We give because we see how God has prospered us, and if we don't see how He has blessed us, then we don't give from a grateful heart. And I think you ought to not give. God doesn't need our money, He wants our heart. And the seventh principle, verse 3 of chapter 16. Then Paul says, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. This is Paul's way of saying, I'm not going to handle the money. You pick some of your own people. Paul wants to leave no room for questions or suspicions concerning the money. That's why I want the greatest portion of my personal giving to be through this storehouse, Evergreen. Because here there is accountability. Here there are persons whom we have selected who are accountable and who are confidential. Most of us are aware. Certainly it gets a lot of publicity. Most of us are sadly aware of ministries and ministers that constantly plead for money while their leaders live in opulence and luxury with little or no accountability. In flipping channels the other night, I came across one who has a $14 million jet, and he is making an impassioned plea for an upgrade to a $24 million jet. And he says, this will help me spread the gospel by not having to stop for gas. I changed the channel about that time. <laughs> Biblical giving is involved giving. Paul says, you people take the money to Jerusalem. God doesn't want our money if we're not willing to be involved with it. Our giving is not to replace our involvement. If we do not have time for God's program of winning people to Himself, of loving His little ones, of guiding and modeling His youth, of helping the hurting and feeding the hungry, of serving our world, then He does not want us to tip Him with our money. He doesn't need it. There's one more thing. If you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, we're so glad you're here. But remember this, God is not looking for your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. And then the one from Ephesians, Don read, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, 
Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with Him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of Himself to us. Love like that. Let's pray. Father, sometimes talking about money and giving can make us uncomfortable. If we are uncomfortable, help us to understand why. And help us to develop not an obligation to give, but the joy of generosity, celebrating all you have done for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.